This is Anabaptist Perspectives. Are Anabaptists guilty of a cultish approach to theology? Do we all have to be historical scholars to understand the Bible? Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Anabaptist Perspectives. I'm joined again by Dean Taylor up in Boston. Um, and as we did in the last episode, we've been responding to some of the comments that we've got on uh, the very first episode we ever did with Anabaptist Perspectives, and that was with Dean. And uh, on this one, we're going to be diving in specifically about how we interpret Scripture. Uh, again, referring, and we talked about this in, in a previous episode with Dean, but this um the Anabaptist hermeneutic, an uncomplicated view of Scripture. So, Dean, I'm going to start with a comment that we got uh, on YouTube from someone who saw your uh, that first episode we did with you, and I'd love to hear uh, your thoughts on that. And the name of that episode is The Essence of Anabaptism, which you can, you can find on our channel. So this person comments and says, I recommend that pastors have an extensive course on textual criticism, learn Hebrew, Greek, and understand the cosmology of a Jew living in the late Second Temple period. Without understanding the textual history of how the Bible and canon came to be, we are putting the cart before the horse. Having a philosophy that takes the scripture fundamentally and literally is not good. When reading Genesis 6-2, what exegesis are, do you apply? Fallen angels or the line of Seth, whichever one you choose? How can you prove it? How does one reconcile the translation source text variances between Byzantine, Alexandrian, Texas Receptus, Septuagint, Masoretic text, Sumerian, Pentateuch, and the Dead Sea Scrolls? The fact is that every single Christian Bible out there today is an eclectic text. Translators had to cherry pick between manuscripts to finalize their translation. So, um, yeah, this is a this is an interesting perspective coming in on on your episode there, Dean. Uh, it's not a specific question, so to speak, but yeah, what what do you think of this? How how would you respond to this person? It's an incredibly packed uh, question with with lots of different pieces to it, um, but there, it's a good question, and, and it's it kind of all represents a concept of maybe uh, a lower biblical criticism, not higher criticism, but textual criticism, which is valid. I, I think it's these are good arguments that need to be made, and they're good questions that need that we all need to to ask, uh, or or, it's, or we don't all need to, but it's, at least it's healthy to ask. We have a class here up here at Sattler where where Finney goes into a lot of details on some of those things, but I'll I'll try to give you just a little bit of where I come out on this. The bottom line is that it is good for us to do to know our Bible and to know what some of the critics are saying about the Bible, as I said in the other question. Um, no argument that has lasted more than 500 years is stupid. And these questions on textual criticism and higher criticism, maybe you're not 500 years old. Well, some of them are. Um, but uh, they're still very old and they're still very valid. A lot of your line of reasoning that the question was asked goes down the line of a sort of a critical text model. Uh, he used the word eclectic. Um, this is the Alexandrian idea, the, the ancient text and that kind of, 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 a, of a trajectory. And I used to be there. I, I uh, you know, me, I'm a historical theologian, so the older the better um, was something that I, I, I kind of hung on to. And you do kind of end up in a bit of a ditch where I think it sounds like maybe our question is coming from that ditch. Where do you ever end? You got this eclectic Bible that has this piece and that piece and that piece and you're and you're using all these methods together and you end up with the Alexandrian text, the critical text, which 
makes up a lot of like, oh, New American Standard, NIV, um, Revised Standard Version, some of those. It's not a bad argument, um, but in general, we would reject that based upon what's called the majority text or the Byzantine text, and for good reasons, and for good, very good reasons, is that the arguments that are behind the eclectic approach, the, the just putting together all these, these pieces, it never ends and it begins to just be a circular reasoning that just, well, it comes to a point that I just don't follow the, the hermeneutic or the, uh, the, the method they're using. For instance, what is the oldest should be the best? Well, the place where they were the oldest were mainly around in Alexandria. Well, Alexandria is also one of the driest climate. They're also the place where you had the most place where there was Gnosticism and that kind of a thing. And sometimes because something is preserved doesn't mean it was the thing that was most used. So, for instance, I've got some Bibles, some eclectic um, Bibles that I hardly ever touch, but I have them for a different version and different you know, type of thing, and I put them here on my shelf. But my Bibles wore, you know, much more worn out. I write in it and all that kind of a thing. And so just to say because they found this in some monastery, you know, more of these more ancient texts, then usurps the other more majority text group, I don't follow. Um, also, some of the uh, uh, reasoning is like if it's shorter, then it should be used. And so like the woman caught in adultery is left out of some of the Alexandrian eclectic texts where the majority text has that. Again, the argument just doesn't follow. And, and if you look at that, it really comes down to a lot of times where I think if you look at areas that has to do with Christology or the uh, divinity of Christ or, the, or particularly even the, uh, the human um, aspect of Christ, you can many times see within these Alexandrian texts and some of these critical texts a Gnostic influence. I'm not saying they all are that way or, or say that this is all just a Gnostic Bible or something, but I, I came to the point where I just don't trust it. So what I've received um, is, is the majority text, which is based, uh, you usually get like, I don't know, the uh, King James, the New King James, and not a King James only per se, but using this majority text is that we find in all different places um, separated by countries and cultures and different things, this majority text. I will grant you, it is much later of what we have from that textual type than the critical Alexandrian text, but the Byzantine text gives us a more complete picture. It's what I read in the early church. When I read uh, through the different early Christian writers, I see their references to the things that I find in the majority text, and this also gives a credence back to using that text type. So I don't take it lightly, and um, but I will find I have found that is something that I've I've, I've used if if that helps. I, I also use this. I don't know if I've talked about this before. I use an acronym called SCAR. I've used the term an apostolic quadrilateral. And the image I get is Thomas asking Jesus, you know, um, can you, I don't believe you until I see the scar. And so, you know, see the scar. And so I use an acronym SCAR. It goes like this. Here's the way my, my um, interpretation goes. Scripture is number one. Nothing, no doctrine from anybody, I don't care if they're just a martyr origin or anyone, can be held as required for the faith if it's not written in Scripture. And I would define that Scripture more specifically in the, in the majority text, but in Scripture. The next is C for Christocentric. I read the Bible, and Anabaptists do, in a Christocentric fashion. In other words, if I have to choose between something that's written by Paul or Jesus, I will always take both of them. I never will explain away Paul 
or the Old Testament, but a Christocentric puts Christ as the um, as the top. Um, it's just the interpretive tool of way I, I would read Christ through all of the scriptures. The last two, I put it on a different plane, A and R, are antiquity and real. Antiquity is where I would say that I try to, in, the, in my interpretation of the scripture, to find something in antiquity, the early church. And because of the belief that as a Jude 3 would say, you know, we, we should um, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And that keeping to this faith, I'm why I read the, the ancients and why I'm so a passionate um, historical theologian is because I'm trying to look at the antiquity to see what's there. And that weighs a lot into my hermeneutic of how I um, interpret scripture. And then finally, the, the, the most fluffy of these is real. In other words, is this a practice that has gone on through the church through uh, the course of 2,000 years, or is this just something that's made up in the 21st century? And so I'm usually suspicious as some new guy says, you know what, I've got a new way to translate the scripture that no one has ever done before. And I'm like, yeah, I'd probably say, I'm not gonna necessarily doubt it. If it's scriptural, I'll look at it. If it's Christocentric, I'll look at it. But it's, I'm going to bring a, a big amount of doubt. So I also give the benefit of the doubt to the, the Holy Spirit working through the church, but not at the level that I put scripture and Christology. So that's my scar. Um, and that's the way it's an interpretive tool that I use uh, often. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. So thank you, Dean, for, for giving that uh, a little more context and um, I guess a bit more nuance to what you were saying in that original interview. I, I find that helpful to understand. Okay, okay. Here's a little more where you're coming from. And, and I understand you in that original interview too, we were just kind of hitting the high points and this is, a, this is, this is good to go in a little deeper um, with this. So in that vein, I'm going to read another comment that we got um, here from someone named uh, Donald. Um, and he's had some disappointments with ana uh, Anabaptism, which you'll see in this comment. Uh, so this is what Donald says. I am drawn to much of the Anabaptist theology and yet totally repulsed by its profound implosions in practice having been quote-unquote Anabaptist for over 40 years, it at its best has a solid core biblical theology. Yet somehow this theology seems encased with cultish feel that seems unwilling to critically analyze its own theology. The last 15 years has left me very disillusioned with the quote vision, Harold, S., uh, Harold Bender, he's saying, the movement of peace has more fractures than less quote-unquote peaceful movements. The movement of, quote, scripture alone has moved from the gospel that brings peace to a gospel that equals peace. The movement that stood resolutely with the word of God and against society now redefines the word of God through the lens of society. But, of course, mentioning such things makes one disloyal and out of fellowship, just like any good cult would do. Overall, it seems like Anabaptism has more in common with pipe dreams than working theology. So he's, he's, yeah, got a lot of, uh, a <laughs> lot of pushback here um, for you. So yeah, I'd, I'd be curious, what, what would you have to, to say to someone like Donald who, who sees this and is like, this doesn't, this doesn't work for me. I guess I'd say, ouch, first of all, I mean, he's talking about his 40 years of experience. So who am I to, you know, to, um, say that it's not real. Um, he's talking about his pain. He's talking about what he's experienced in his church. So, wow, I, I'm sorry. Um, I've, um, it's Donald, right? Donald, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I will say this, 
Donald, I, I will say this, first of all, there's nothing, nothing harder to do in my life than church. You know, I was working over in Lesbos and I, and I, I am so excited to, to bring some of these Muslims through, um, you know, to Christ and, and try to get them into the church. And then I see them getting offended by very little things. I'm like, wow, if you got offended by that, you've got a lot to go through. And I don't know how to, to say this. Uh, well, I'll say this, that God uses the church in a sanctifying way that is just a cross. I mean, it really is. And if we go into the church, and I don't, I didn't get from his letter, I got from his letter a more personal pain. I mean, it didn't seem just accusations, you know. I mean, it sounded like someone who's trying and like, you know, I'll, I'll be disloyal and that type of a thing. I have found that with most circles, that I'm surprised is when I'm charitable but honest, people will actually want to sit and talk. And that bubbling all this up inside and having these objections and having these things, I want to believe that you would find that your ministry and your church would be more receptive than you think they would be. You're not a young man. You've been in this at least 40 years. And so you're going to say back, yeah, you don't know my church, maybe. But I do think we got to be honest. I do think we got to be transparent, you know, and God, I think, does call us to what the Anabaptist calls a Galassian height. It's the emptying that Jesus talks about, this have this mind within you that was also in Christ Jesus, Paul says, this kenosis, this, this only way to survive in one of these kind of a churches. Uh, on the other hand, I don't think we're supposed to be empty-minded and, and just, uh, you know, go through this because, you know, some things are wrong. You know, we're human beings and we make a lot of mistakes and we've done a lot of dumb things. And I've been in a lot of situations myself that have been, I don't know, toxic. Um, but I do think that talking through those things and being really honest is the way to go. And then allowing yourself to hear and say reason. And so let's, I'm challenged about this way we're looking at peace that's, we're just, end up becoming peace is the, the gospel. I totally agree with you. When I was first becoming a conscious objector, liberal pacifism and its, and its sort of uh, peace gospel stuff almost derailed me. Um, I believe that the factions and the things like that are, are bad too. So yeah, you know, John the Baptist, he's in jail and, you know, he would have heard maybe, I guess, or he would have at least heard of the Luke 4 passage that Jesus said that I, I come to set the captives free. John the Baptist sitting in jail now, who he would have been known more than anyone. He, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world is sitting in jail. And he's like, so where's the setting the captive free part? I'm in jail and about to lose my head. And that's when he sends his, his own disciples to go ask Jesus, are you the one? What Jesus says there I think is really profound First, you know, tell him I did these things, and I said, and he, then he says, "Blessed is he who is not offended in me." Blessed is he who is not offended in me. Offense and being offended is the way Satan works in the church, and we got to go past that. And Jesus is somehow saying, "I'm there with you. This is part of it. Walk. I'll walk through this with you. Be honest. Be real." And don't get offended and don't lose the faith. 
Jesus is with you there, just like he was with John the Baptist, and he'll see you through it. But yeah, it's uh, thank you for that honest pushback. I think it's I think it's good. Yeah, thanks for for tackling that. The, like these are these are hard things. I, you know, Donald, if you're yeah. watching this, you know, would love to hear back from you a follow up comment. And yeah, I think you you had a really good point there, Dean. I mean, you know, human beings can be a bit messy, you know, like and, and complicated and. Yeah. inconsistent and yeah. sometimes not very nice to each other. Um, and there, there's a lot going on there. And, and I think Donald is, is pointing out, you know, this is, this is an area that, that all of us can, we can always be growing in this, you know, where we can say one thing and it sounds all nice yeah. and idealistic, but then it, when it's walked out day to day, there's some real yeah. gaps there. Yeah. Well, thank you for, uh, for taking the time to, to come in here, Dean, and, and answer some of this, uh, you know, some of this feedback from your, from that very first episode we did, uh, what was that four years ago, or I would say about now, um, while time moves on. Um, but yeah, would you have anything else you would like to share with our audience before we end this episode? Just one last thing I was thinking as I just gave answered the one question there, and I was giving my, my scar and all that, you know, about the hermeneutic, the question and, and was back about the simplistic, the simplistic reading of scripture you know, I believe the word of God without complicated interpretation of that, that, of that I speak, and the, the words of our Lord is meant to be put into practice. You don't need a scar hermeneutic. You don't need uh, to understand the Byzantine and Alexandrian text. I mean, I think it's good for us. I, I, I don't hide from those questions like he was asking. I like for us, our students up here, to ask those questions and come up with sound answers to the postmodern liberal world world that we're fighting against. However, the scriptures do tell us to receive it as a child. And so taking the word of God and just uh, making it applicable in your life and using it as a blueprint, I really think it's the genius of Anabaptism. It's the genius of Christianity. It's the genius of the early church is just that simplistic and beautiful keeping of Jesus. And I honestly can't imagine anything that we would do that we're just honestly obeying the word of God on judgment day, I think that's what's really gonna matter. Lord, I did this because this is what you said. And holding on to that and doing that and being real with that uh, is the emphasis that I really wanna leave, not the being able to explain our way out of the Alexandrian text. Uh, that's good to know, but just taking it as a child and obeying Jesus like a child is beautiful. And I encourage us all, all to keep doing that. Me, it's, it's a journey, let's, let's keep doing that. Wow, yeah. That's some really good stuff. I, uh, yeah, it's really good encouragement for our audience. Thank you, everyone who's watched and, and left comments like this. We really enjoy hearing from you and coming back here a couple years later and, and responding to these things. That's, that's uh, yeah, this has been really fun. Thank you, Dean, for your time. And uh, thank you all for watching this episode. For more information about Anabaptist Perspectives, to read our blog, to donate, and to see videos of the conversations you hear on this podcast, visit anabaptistperspectives.org. We'd love to hear from our audience, so leave your feedback in the comments for this podcast or send us a message through our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Anabaptist Perspectives. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We invite you to join our monthly partner program. 
Monthly partners are key to the financial sustainability of Anabaptist Perspectives. Partners also gain access to bonus content, including our exclusive podcast where we respond to audience questions and comments. Sign up at anabaptistperspectives.org.